Pray with me. Actually, no, don't pray with me. Uh, let's read first, and then you can pray with me. Uh, turn to First uh, Timothy chapter four. First Timothy chapter four. We'll be reading verses six through sixteen of that chapter. Actually, we'll read verses 1 through 16, the whole chapter, in other words. This is the Word of God. Uh, He wrote it, ultimately, uh, through the hand of the Apostle Paul. Uh, But it is His Word. Listen carefully and reverently to it. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and Doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Until I come, give careful attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance and with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for being a speaking God who has spoken uh, in past times through prophets and apostles, and now you continue to speak to us through the inscripturated word uh, given through those men of, uh, of your. And we thank you that this word is a sure word, uh, all of it. And we thank you for this particular passage and ask that you would help us to understand and to apply uh, what we read in this, that we might honor you and that we might also be blessed ourselves and be a blessing to others. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Children, all you children, have you ever heard the word or know of what the word athlete means? Have you heard of an athlete? Do you know what that word means? Well, an athlete is someone who uh, plays some sort of a sport uh, that involves physical activity. That's what an athlete is, somebody who who, uh, uh, plays sports. And there are good athletes, some are really good, and there are also athletes that are not so good. So let me ask you, what is it about good athletes, good players of sports, that makes them good athletes? Well, it depends on the sport to some degree, but a couple things we can pretty safely say about uh, uh, good athletes in terms of what they do and what they look like. First of all, a good athlete, whether it's a basketball player or a hockey player or a volleyball player or a, a softball player, whatever, a good athlete is going to be someone more than likely who practices their sport a lot, who regularly and a lot of the time is playing uh, that sport and working at becoming better at that sport, right? That's one of the traits, one of the marks, you might call it, of uh, a good athlete. A good athlete also is liable to be one who, who strengthens him or herself, uh, strengthens their muscles by regular exercise, by uh, running or lifting weights or, uh, or whatever, stretching. A good athlete also probably eats right. You put junk into your body and your body doesn't perform very well. So an athlete, probably most of the time anyway, eats pretty good food. And there are other things that you could say uh, about a good athlete. But what, what these things are that I've just mentioned, eating right, practicing a lot, uh, uh, exercising and so on, um, they are what we call marks or characteristics of a good athlete. Traits, if you will. And I'm going to call them marks uh, for, the, for the sake of uh, uh, for what I'm for this sermon. They're the marks of a good athlete. Well, just like a good athlete has marks or characteristics that uh, he uh, displays or she displays, so too do good ministers, Christian ministers, or servants of Christ. They have certain marks. And um, that's what uh, but the majority of what I'm going to say this morning is, is we're going to look at the marks of a faithful minister, a good servant of Christ, <coughs> who is a minister. Uh, just a reminder here, uh, this is called First Timothy for a reason, and that is because it was written to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing to Timothy as the lead pastor. He might have been the only pastor, but he might not have been the only pastor uh, or elder of the church uh, in Ephesus. Um, And he was, uh, Paul uh, placed him there in Ephesus uh, and gave him the responsibility to shepherd the people there. And that's what uh, Timothy was doing, doing as Paul is writing to him here to give him instruction as to how to do this, uh, much of which, uh, well, all of which he expects Peter... uh, Timothy, to pass on to the congregants there, which he undoubtedly did by reading this uh, letter to them in, in a worship service. Um, but So Paul is telling Peter, uh, Timothy in this letter, and particularly in this section of this letter that we're looking at today, what he needs to do in order to be a good minister of Christ and a good spiritual shepherd of God's people there in Ephesus. <coughs> 
Could you get me in a moment? Thank you. Um, look at verse 6 just for a moment, because this is really uh, where, where the uh, preaching passage that I'm, we're looking at today begins. He says there, in pointing out these things to the brethren, I'll explain that in just a moment, you will be, you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Christ. The Greek word there that Paul uses, which the New American Standard that I'm reading from translates as servant, that Greek word can also be translated just as rightly with the word minister, the English word minister. And it can actually, is also translated as the word deacon. Uh, uh, it's the word diakonos, uh, the Greek word. And anyway, so it can be translated as any of those three things, as servant, as minister, as deacon. Um, and by the way, minister is the way that it's uh, rendered by the New King James, by the NIV, NIV and uh, some other translations as well. So it depends on the translation you're looking at as to whether or not that word is rendered servant or minister. Uh, for my purposes, I, I'm going to use, I'm going to translate the word as servant minister uh, from here on out, which brings me to the two points, the first one much longer than the second of the sermon. The first point that we're going to look at is we're going to look at the marks of a good or faithful servant minister. And the second, uh, and that's in verses uh, uh, 6 through 14. And then the uh, last portion of uh, the sermon, the second point, we're going to look at the efforts of a good, uh, of a good or faithful servant minister. Uh, in verses 15 and 16. So first, we're going to look at uh, the marks of a good servant minister. Again, remember that the servant minister that Paul is writing to first and foremost, that he first and foremost has in mind, is Timothy. Um, and so this letter is to Timothy, so it's first, it applies first and foremost to him. But what he says to Timothy doesn't obviously, or wouldn't have made it in this book, doesn't just apply to Timothy. It applies to any and all ministers of the gospel in the New Testament age. And it even applies more broadly than that. It applies to you as well, uh, who aren't ministers. But we'll get into that as we get into here. So, but it's first and foremost to Timothy, but it's really to everybody. And so, he's saying this is what it, what being a good servant of Christ, a good minister of the gospel is, looks like. The marks. So, the first mark that he mentions in verses 6 and 11, both, um, is that a good servant minister will teach his flock the truths about which Paul has just written in verses 1 through 5. So I'm just going to very briefly review for you. I already read it and I won't reread it. What he said in verses 1 through 5, just to remind you of what a good minister, some of what a good minister is going to teach his people. So, first of all, he's going to teach his people that apostasy is going to happen in the church. Uh, this, when a one, uh, it's a real phenomenon, apostasy is, and that is what happens when a once professing Christian spiritually deserts the Lord Jesus after having previously expressed a commitment to him and loyalty to him and faith in him. And he says apostasy is just something that's going to be with us down through the ages. You're going to have apostates in the church. Well, who eventually will leave the church? Most of them anyway. Um, when, they, when they're found out. And Apostasy is the same word as falling away, and he and he goes on and he, sa- he indicates that a good minister is also going to teach his flock that such fallings away or apostasies often 
if not always, occur, are going to occur when professing Christians embrace anti-biblical teachings taught by demon-inspired false teachers, which is what happened was happening in Ephesus uh, uh, in Paul's congregation, or was uh, on the verge of happening, which is why Paul is writing here specifically. And and he he says uh, such anti-biblical teachings would include, and not limited to this, but would include the two that uh, that he mentioned specifically about the situation in Ephesus, and that is that Christians shouldn't marry. Uh, because it's more godly or spiritual to remain single or to avoid having uh, uh, sexual intercourse. And they also taught that Christians shouldn't eat certain foods, probably meats, uh, because doing so was, uh, again, uh, uh, that it was more godly for a, or more spiritual for a person to refrain from uh, certain foods that they had in mind. And Paul has said, this is hogwash. Such ascetic practices, denial of the, of getting, of marriage or, uh, refusal to eat certain foods, uh, such ascetic practices run counter, Paul has indicated in the previous, uh, section there, run counter to what the Bible teaches. Namely, that everything that God has created is good. <coughs> whether it be material things such as food, or whether it be institutions such as marriage. Marriage, and God created. It's one of the, uh, creation ordinances. And he says, God created it, it's good, period. That's no, no longer any discussion. And he's saying a good minister will, will teach God's people such truths. Um, and Timothy was to do the same. Also a good minister would teach his flock, what we read in verse 4, uh, or rather uh, verse, verses 3 through 5, <coughs> that the only appropriate Christian response to God's provision of such good gifts as marriage and and food, including meat from animals, that the only appropriate response on the part of the Christian to such things is to accept them with great gratitude in our hearts to God for his providing them. Which is why, by the way, you know, I regularly pray, as I did this morning, for temporal blessings. Give God thanks to God for temporal blessings. We need to be thankful for those things. We need to be thankful for steaks. We need to be thankful for... Pickled herring. I'm sorry that came into my mind. Um, we need to be, I, I'm thankful for that. Uh, for other such things. Um, we need to be grateful uh, to God for having given those things that we, and taste buds with which to enjoy them. And then Paul indicates in verse 6 also that by teaching his congregants, Timothy's congregants, these truths that I've just enumerated, Paul, uh, Timothy himself would be spiritually nourished by the very truths that he's teaching. So he would be blessed, and by the way, I can attest to this, when I get up here and do what I'm doing right now, I'm often speaking more to myself in some ways than I am to you. I mean, it hits me as I'm saying it, sometimes really hard, um, which is a good thing, by the way. Um, so the, the minister is blessed as he ministers God's word to others, uh, if he's doing it properly. And so Paul is saying, this is one of the marks of a good servant prophet. He will teach his flock, faithfully teach his flock, such things uh, as what uh, we've read in verses 1 through 5. But secondly, <coughs> another mark of a good minister of the gospel is that he will do nothing, he will have nothing to do with worldly favor, fables. There we go. Worldly fables. Verse 7 uh, makes this point. He's talking here, Paul is, about made-up, my, my words, made-up stories 
which some allege to be true or historically accurate or history, when in fact they are neither true nor history. They're fables. They're just uh, non-fiction. Or excuse me, fiction rather. Fiction. Fiction. Um, just the pro- uh, product of someone's uh, um, fevered imagination. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, right here, is telling not only Timothy, he's certainly telling Timothy, but he's telling all ministers of the gospel, and by the way, this includes not just the teaching elder, PCA language, but also the ruling elder, uh, elders, because all of us are ministers in, in, in some sense, uh, or very real sense. But he's teaching all, telling all ministers of the gospel, and indeed all of Christians, uh, that we are to reject such fanciful tales uh, as nonsense. Modern examples of such fables <coughs> would include <coughs> such ridiculous... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Boy, I really do need to drink this. Hold on just a second. Would include such uh, ridiculous notions as the Mormon claim that Jesus came to North America... Uh, and preached to the Native American Indians back in the first century. That's just hogwash. It's ridiculous. Uh, another modern example would be the claim made by modern liberal scholars that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Such fantastic notions are more than mere garbage. They are demon-inspired blasphemies, which must and will be rejected out of hand by any and every true Christian believer, not just minister, but believer. Dan, Dan Brown's writings, some of you may remember Dan Brown. This is a good example of it. Don't bother. It's a waste of your time even reading it. I sometimes have to read stuff like that because I have to know what's going on. But, and, and some of you are able to do that. But most of us, it's a waste of time. And, and it's dangerous even. By the way, okay. So, so that's another thing. He will, he will uh, have nothing to do with worldly fables. Also, a good minister, a faithful minister of the gospel, will verse seven tells us, discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. Paul's words. The Greek word that Paul uses here means uh, for discipline, uh, translate discipline by the New American Standard, means to train or exercise vigorously. And the word can refer to physical training, uh, mental training, or, of course, spiritual training. And Paul obviously has spiritual training in mind here in this passage when he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, not for the purpose of crossing a finish line, but for the purpose of godliness. So that's what he has in mind. And he, so he's saying, Timothy, you need, you and, uh, as minister of the gospel, you need to vigorously train your your soul, your spirit, which are synonymous, uh, in much the same way that an exceptional athlete must vigorously train his body and his mind. You need to train your soul or your spirit. By extension, of course, this commandment to energetically pursue God and the things of God uh, and to seek God, that obviously applies to all Christian leaders, but is it not obvious that it applies to every single Christian. We all need to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, of growing in Christ-likeness, of growing in holiness. 
and the way that a Christian spiritually trains um, himself for godliness is by availing himself or herself of the ordinary means of grace. You don't hear that language much outside of Reformed circles, I, I suspect. Uh, but it's good language. Uh, it's important language, and you need to remember that. The ordinary means of grace, not extraordinary, because there were extraordinary means of grace that were, that were uh, in existence in the first century when the apostles were walking on the earth. But we're talking about the ordinary means of grace, because there's no longer a supernatural, uh, supernatural activity, we believe, that, that are giftings that there were in the first century that Paul and Peter had and so on. Uh, of, of healing and the, the like. But the ordinary means of grace, that's how we train ourselves. Those are the things with which we train ourselves. So what are those ordinary means of grace? The faithful reading and memorization and meditation upon Scripture, regular and earnest prayer, not half-hearted, but earnest prayer and praying, um, faithful Participation in corporate worship and attendance at corporate worship where the sacraments are found, where the preached word is found. The preached word is not found outside of this context. It's not found in front of the television watching to Charles, watching Charles Stanley. No, not, not, I'm not picking on Charles Stanley, but just as an example. That's not church. That's not the preached word. It's not the same thing as being here. And by the way, being remote is not the same thing as being here either. Even if you watch it live, it's not the same thing. So, but sometimes that's all that anybody can do because of a providential hindrance. But, uh, but anyway, my point is being present is what needs to happen, what we need to do. So, uh, how faithful are you in some of these areas? How faithful are you of, in seeking God's faith in prayer? How's your prayer life? How faithful are you at attending corporate worship regularly, being here? We're told here that we must diligently engage in such spiritual activities in pursuit of God, if we do that, rather, as we do that, as we diligently engage in these kinds of spiritual activities in pursuit of the Lord, uh, and seeking God, we will not only grow in godliness, in Christ-likeness, we certainly will, but also as a result of that growth in Christ-likeness, we will be greatly blessed. It's not just for God that we do these things, but it's for we ourselves benefit. Let me read verses 8 and 9 again. Uh, uh, I'll begin at the beginning of, uh, or in the middle of verse 7. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For, here's the reason, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. There's some profit to going to the gym. I think it's, uh, Christians probably ought to do it. But it's not the most important thing, or anywhere close to the most important thing. For bodily discipline is only of, of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. And then he says this, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. It's, it's blessings. It's profitable for the present life, for you in the present life, and in the life to come. 
because as I'm going to say, a point I'm going to make again in a moment, perseverance in faith and obedience is required to get into heaven. It is necessary. I'll explain that more in a little bit. But my point is, we, we, we need, we are going to be blessed as we, as we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And yes, God is going to be honored, which is even more important. And Christ is going to be uh, uh, exalted. But we're also going to get a blessing in this life and in the life to come. Okay, another uh, mark of a good minister. Uh, not only will he... Uh, let me find my place here. Not only will he uh, teach the things that uh, the truths and other truths as well that Paul has spoken of, uh, not only will he not do uh, uh, reject worldly fables and avoid um, interest in worldly fables, but he will also not only will he discipline himself for the purpose of godliness, but he will do this as well. Verse ten tells us he will have his hope fixed on God as the Savior of sinners. He will have his hope fixed on God. Paul is asserting here, let me read verse 10, for it is for this we labor and strive, we ministers, and not just we ministers, but Christians at large uh, would be included there, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Paul is asserting here in in verse 10 that as he and others like him, labor and strive to seek God, the hope that he has, that hope being, that is to say, the trust that he has, the patience that he exhibits, his expectations for the future, that hope flows from his conviction that the triune God on whom he is focusing is the Savior of all men. He thinks about that. He puts it at the forefront of his mind that God is the Savior of all men. Now, let me explain this. I've noted this in the past from this pulpit and in Sunday school and whatnot and in personal conversations, but the Greek word, <clears throat> uh, pos is the Greek word, uh, that's translated as all here in most all translations, actually. That Greek word um uh, regularly means, and sadly it's not often translated this way as it should be, but it regularly means all sorts of, or all kinds of, or all varieties of. Which is the meaning here, when he says all men. God is the Savior of all men. So Paul is describing God as the Savior of all kinds of people. All different varieties of people from all different backgrounds. Socioeconomic, ethnic, racial, so on and so forth. God saves people from all different groups of people, all walks of life, all places. And Paul says, "He, Timothy, you need to think on that. That's the God you serve as you minister in the world. And it's easy to understand, isn't it, why Christian ministers in particular need to keep this truth about God, that he's the Savior of all sorts of men, all kinds of people, at the forefront of their thoughts. Why it's important for a minister like me to do that. Because proclaiming the gospel is central to what a minister does. Telling people how they may be saved from the wrath of God and be forgiven. It's central to what I do. And others like me. And the elders in this room as well. And folks, 
It's easy, and you know this probably yourself, but especially it's easy for us as ministers to get discouraged when we are proclaiming the gospel, whether it be in, in a room full of people, uh, like it, uh, on Sunday, but also in other venues and other places and other uh, situations. It's, it's easy to get discouraged sharing the gospel because all too often there's not much response. But keeping this truth in mind that God is, in fact, a God who saves all sorts of men. All sorts of men there is is generic, meaning men and women, people. Keeping that truth in mind can help a person who is sharing his faith, particularly a minister, not to get discouraged, unduly at least, unduly discouraged, but even to be encouraged as he or she tells others about Jesus. Because it reminds us that the Lord intends to save all sorts of people. Not just a few. Not just people from a certain ethnic background or a certain nation or a certain gender. And there are only two. He intends to save all kinds of people. Through vessels like us. Particularly through Ministers of the gospel, with a capital M, meaning guys that have gone to seminary and been ordained, but also through ministers like you. You are ministers as well, in your spheres of influence. All of us are ministers, or need to be. Serve others, minister to others, by telling them the truths that they need to hear that they might be saved. And so, a good minister keeps that in his mind, in the forefront of his mind, as he does what he does, be that minister a leader in the church or a layperson um, like you may be. We need to remember God came, God, God is glorified through the magnification of his grace and the proclamation and belief in the gospel in the world. And he wants many, many people to experience that forgiveness, that, he, uh, that, that grace that is his rather than his judgment. Now let me say something. This is a, uh, as a, as a, not an aside, but a bit of an aside. I want to, I want to say something more particularly about the last phrase in verse 10. So let me read it again. I'm going to read it the way the, the New American Standard renders it. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all, and again, that should say all sorts of men, especially of believers. Most translations do render the last clause there in verse 10 as especially of believers. Drawing a distinction, seemingly drawing a distinction between uh, all men and believers. The word especially conjures up, this is a distinct from all men. It may be a subset of all men, but uh, it's distinct from all men. It's not the same thing. Uh, The word especially uh, brings that to mind. And while the Greek word that Paul uses here, it's melistos, melista, um, while that Greek word more often than not means especially when it's used in the New Testament, I am convinced both by other places in the Bible where this Greek word is used and the way it's used and by my understanding of what the rest of Scripture teaches concerning the atonement that especially... The word, English word especially is not 
how the Greek word should be rendered here. Um, two places. I'm not going to take the time to look at them now, but you can look them up yourself. 2 Timothy 4.13, Titus 1.10, uh, 1.10 and 11, but it's the, the word is found in 1.10, are two places where it seems pretty clear that the, word, the Greek word melista should not be translated especially, but rather should be translated how, I'm, how it should also, I think, be translated here in verse 10 of 1 Timothy 4, and that is, should be translated as, that is. So, uh, I'll read it that way. Uh, we have fixed, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my translation in here as well, of all sorts of men, that is, of believers. Okay? So, then Paul's point is that God is the Savior of believers from all kinds or varieties of backgrounds. That he's not actually distinguishing uh, between all sorts of men and believers, but he's talking about all sorts of believing men, men being, again, generic. So, that's just an aside. I wanted to give that to you. But uh, he will have his hope fixed on God as Savior. A good minister will. Uh, um, fifthly or sixthly, I'm not sure which it is because I don't have these numbered. A good uh, servant minister will, by his example, which will never be perfect, I need to say that right now, but will, by his general, generally by his example, show those under his spiritual care how they are supposed to conduct themselves. That's verse 12. Let no one, he's talking to Timothy in particular, let no one look down on your youthfulness, Timothy, but rather in speech, conduct, which is kind of a, those are the two general areas, and then he gets specific with love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example to those, not of those. It should be rendered to there, or for those who believe. Now most, uh, most scholars agree that Timothy was probably in his 30s. Can't prove it for sure, but it's likely he was in his uh, early to mid-30s uh, when Paul wrote, him this, wrote this letter to him. And Paul is concerned that Timothy's relative youthfulness, I'll put it that way, could provide an excuse for some there in Ephesus, some uh, in the congregation or even beyond the congregation, to look down on Timothy because he's so young in their eyes and be dismissive of his instruction for the same reason is teaching for the same reason, because he's, he's a young guy. So here, what Paul does is he urges Timothy not to let that happen. Don't let that happen, Timothy. And Paul then indicates that uh, Timothy should be able to overcome any resistance that he might otherwise experience from such people by setting an example of godliness before them. A, 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 a particular Example, uh, a unique, not unique, but a, uh, an example of, of uh, uh, more than normal godliness, if I can put it that way. It's really a poor way to put it, but you get the idea. And Paul indicates that this godliness must manifest itself and will manifest itself in his speech and his conduct, in the way that he speaks what he says and the way he acts, in those two ways. And then he says specifically that both his speech and his behavior will be characterized by love, faith, and purity. 
Again, not perfectly. Don't ever do that to a minister. It's not fair. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. That's, that's most important. But at any rate, um, he needs to, um, yeah, needs to do that. He needs to be godly in those ways. So elders present, myself included, are we, by our words and our actions, the great majority of the time, are our words and our actions characterized by love? Are they characterized by um, faith? Do we demonstrate trust? Do we speak in a way that we uh, show we are trying to trust the Lord? with whatever situation we're talking about. Do we, do we demonstrate this by purity? Uh, purity of our conduct and our speech before others. We need to be doing that. We need to be working on that as elders. And also for those of you who men who might be potential elders uh, one day, or become elders one day. And though, again, these traits need to be most evident in the lives of ministers, elders, speech, uh, the speech and behavior of every Christian needs to be characterized by love, by faith, and by purity. And you know that. It's just common sense. That this applies to more than just ministers of the gospel. Another area in which a good minister will... Uh, another trait that, will be, uh, that a good minister will show forth is that he will faithfully attend to his ministerial responsibilities. Look at verse 13. Until I come, Timothy, implication, implied Timothy, give careful, give attention rather, uh, careful attention is actually implied, to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and t- teaching. To exhortation and teaching. Every Christian minister and this applies particularly to ministers now, not to laity. But every Christian minister must be regularly and diligently engaged in each of these and others that are not mentioned here, but certainly in each of these public ministry tasks that are enumerated here in verse 13 of, uh, of public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. And if he is not doing so, he is not being a faithful servant of Christ. By the way, teaching and exhortation are another way of saying preaching. Because teaching and exhortation are the two components of preaching. So he's speaking about the reading of the word and the preaching of the word. There in verse 13. And finally, the final characteristic or trait or mark of a good minister, faithful uh, servant of uh, the Lord, is he will not neglect the spiritual gift within him. Timothy must not, uh, nor must any other. Verse 14 speaks of this. Um, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, Again, talking to Timothy, but not just Timothy, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic, through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Prophecy was still operative in that day, and so it was operative in the presbytery there when, uh, when Timothy was ordained. And 
What happened at his ordination, when the presbytery, when the other elders uh, in the region laid hands upon him, and when a prophetic word was spoken apparently on that occasion, he received a gift, a divinely given gift. And I believe all ministers, genuine ministers, who are generally called by Christ, receive this gift. It is bestowed by God at the time when uh, other elders lay their hands upon him at ordination, at his ordination. Um, and Which is why, by the way, I distinguish, some of you heard me make this distinction between preaching, which is what an ordained man does, and exhorting, which is a non-ordained man does. Like a, when we have uh, a pulpit supply, Cecil Paul preaches, by the way, he's ordained. Um, but, uh, but like when we have, when I was, uh, before I was ordained, I was, uh, I was working toward the ministry and I was licensed to preach, they say in our denomination, but it's really, I don't think it's licensed to preach because preaching is not what I did before I was ordained. I exhorted. I didn't have the unction, if you will, the blessing, the gift. Um, and I think that's true of every man, um, who is ordained that he receive uh, th- uh, who is uh, whom Christ is, has actually called uh, some get in uh, who aren't called a lot get in who aren't called but they receive this gift and Paul uh, and Timothy did and it was what had a- enabled Timothy uh, to do and what he would would enable him to continue to do to show himself to be an example to those who believe it was that was part of what that gifting from God, uh, allowed him to do, was to, in an an extraordinary way, to show himself an example to those who believe, and also to faithfully discharge the ministry responsibilities that that we see enumerated there in verse uh, 13, and others as well that aren't mentioned there. And this divine gift is what enables ministers today to do the same, to um, grow in godliness, so that they may be, if you will, uh, amongst the most godly people in the congregation, not the only godly people in the congregation, uh, but among the most, and also enabling them to fulfill their ministry uh, responsibilities with more or less faithfulness and effectiveness also. So, we spent a lot of time, and I've just got a few more minutes left, but that was, those are the marks of a good servant minister. Now briefly, in verses 15 and 16, we uh, are described there the efforts uh, of a good servant minister. Paul tells Timothy, in verse 15, that, Timothy, you need to take pains with all the things that I've just written to you, regarding all the things I've just written to you. That's what he says there in verse 15. Take pains with these things, meaning the things I've just said. And then he, and then he uh, in different languages, says the same thing. Be absorbed by them. Take pains with them, be absorbed by them. Then down in verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. These are, you see, it's, he's saying in different ways, more or less the same thing. You've got to be serious about this, Timothy. And I know you are, probably Paul would say, but you need to, con- you need to continue being serious about, about what you do. Because it's very important. Souls, lives, or souls are at stake, including your own. A good minister must be diligent in his duties. I am not always a good minister. 
I wish I were. But I'm a sinner, so I'm not always a good minister. As good as I should be, as faithful as I can be. Please pray for me that I would be more faithful uh, as time goes on. Pray for the other elders as well, that they too would be increasingly faithful as time goes on. We need your prayers. We covet your prayers. But we need to be absorbed by the things that are the things of God, uh, our tasks, our godly, our, our uh, personal piety. We need to be wrapped up in them. We need to be occupied by them. We need to be devoted to them as ministers of Christ so that we might be faithful ministers of Christ to his people. And then Paul says at the end of verse 15 there, interestingly, that the purpose, or at least one of the purposes for which Timothy needs to make such great efforts, and this would be true of any other uh, minister of the gospel, is so that the progress that the minister makes, Timothy's progress in this case, that he makes in his speech, in his conduct, and in his ministry endeavors, uh, as a result of the efforts that he makes, that his progress will be evident to everyone around him. His life, his ministry will shine, if you will. Mine needs to shine more. Again, pray for me. Paul then reiterates that the focus that the focus in these intense efforts of his, of Timothy's, the focus of his efforts and of any minister's efforts must be on himself and his teaching. He's essentially reiterating what he has just said in previous words here uh, uh, in verse 12. But rather in speech and conduct, which summarizes everything, and then with specificity, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. And, and then he goes on and talks about, again, uh, give careful attention give to the public reading of Scripture, his ministry duties, uh, exhortation and teaching. So, He's saying here in verse 15, you need to pay close attention to two things. To yourself, and this is again just reiterating, disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. Be about your own personal piety. Be serious about it. Don't let sin, don't give sin a foothold in your life. And it's tempting to do that, I promise you. For all of us, including your pastor. Pastors. Focus on that. Give careful attention to it. Give pay, take pains with it. Be absorbed by it. Be wrapped up in growing in godliness. And secondly, do so also with respect to your teaching, uh, Paul says to Timothy. The content and the quality of your teaching. Folks, teaching the Bible to others is a weighty responsibility. I feel the weight of it when I prepare sermons. Biblical instructors, teachers of all stripes, whether they be pastors like me, Sunday school teachers um, like uh, Art or Stuart or Kirk or Bill or Trey or um, Lisa, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, parents, who are instructors of their children, husbands who are instructors of their wives and their children, need to exercise great care about what we teach those whom we teach concerning the meaning and the application of Scripture. 
We need to choose our words carefully and we need to study before we choose our words. What the Bible is teaching on whatever it is we're talking about at any given moment. As I've said to all of you, all Christians, but especially teachers of others, need to be good theologians. You need to be a good theologian. But that's especially important that Christian ministers be good theologians who conscientiously teach the Bible to the flock to whom they are, Christ has called them because, we're given a because in verse 16, because if we who are ministers of the gospel are good uh, teachers and faithful teachers of those whom Christ has put us in charge of, or over rather, pastorally, because when we persevere in doing these things, when we persevere in our ministry responsibilities and in pursuing uh, growth in our own personal piety, when we do this, verse 16 tells us, such perseverance will result in the salvation not only of ourselves, but also of our hearers. Pretty strong language. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you... Minister will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, I've said this before, but I'm saying it again now because it's really important to say it right now because of what I just read to you. While we are, as Christians, we are justified by faith in Christ alone. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And while that is true... That justifying faith of a truly converted person is never alone, but is always accompanied by subsequent perseverance in that faith and in growing obedience. In this sense, that it is a must, perseverance is a condition of our salvation. It's not the antecedent Condition, I got that word from Trey, which is faith. Faith is the antecedent. Trust is the antecedent. To, it, it comes before. It precedes. It's the antecedent condition. Faith is. But uh, perseverance is a condition. It's not an antecedent condition as faith is, but it is the consequent <coughs> condition of our salvation. Nobody's getting into heaven who hasn't persevered in faith and obedience, even though we're not justified by our perseverance. We will persevere. And that's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Timothy's perseverance in godliness and his faithful instruction of others would result in his own salvation, ultimate salvation here, referring to entrance into heaven. And of course, he's going to, it's going to happen because he's a truly converted person. He's a justified believer. But his justification, his justifying faith will be accompanied by his perseverance that he will keep doing. Imperfectly, but will keep doing. And Timothy's perseverance in these, in godliness and in his faithful instruction of others, his teaching, will also result in the salvation of others. Specifically, those, many of those, not all, uh, but it's a general statement, of those uh, 
who sit under his preaching and his teaching and observe his godly living. And that's true of today's Christian ministers just as it was true of Timothy and Paul. It's true of guys like me. That's that's why I need your prayers. Because that's hard sometimes. Because you're under a microscope. And you need to be under a microscope as a minister. But it's hard. At any rate, we are all ministers in a general sense of Christ. Servants. And we all need to be good servants. And this passage has told you in many ways, some of which are not applicable. Verse 13 is not applicable to the layperson in the pew. But, uh, but uh, we're told here how to be a good servant of Christ. You are told, I am told. May God give us the grace to be good servants. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for that grace. We need it. We are doomed to failure if we don't have your enabling help in all of these matters. That is true of all of us. We all need to discipline ourselves further than that which we've already achieved for the purpose of godliness, greater godliness. Lord, you want us, we're going to persevere in, in fighting the good fight. And we need help in persevering. Would you please grant us a, a desire to be more godly? Would you please grant us greater faith to be to tr- be able to trust you more for strength to be more godly? And would you please, Lord, um, give us give us the grace to uh, to persevere um, and to not ever give up? And we won't. Thank- thankfully, we won't because of the promises that you've made that we won't. But, uh, Lord, help us. And would you please help particularly ministers of the gospel, not just myself and the elders in this room or in this church, but that you would help ministers of the gospel across our land and indeed across the globe who are who you've genuinely called to be ministers of your people, not charlatans, but true, truly called men of faith. Would you please give our ministers greater grace to perform their ministerial duties faithfully and to walk in greater obedience and faith personally as an example to the flock to follow. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.